and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you. Uh, we're in a current series right now, our Advent series, uh, The Father's Gift. And uh, five times throughout the, uh, the chapter, just the single chapter of John chapter 17, five times uh, it is stated over and over again that God the Father has given his son Jesus a gift. And that gift is his people. People that believed in him. People that cling to him. This is framing our entire series on Advent this year as we stay this entire month in John 17. Um, and in this text, Jesus has sort of switched gears in his prayer. And he's now thinking about what life is going to be like for his followers once he has ascended after his resurrection and sits at the right hand of God until his second coming, his second advent, at some point in the future that has been undisclosed to us. He's imagining what life is going to be like for all of us right now. And that is steering his words. That's steering his prayer. Um, I'm a big believer that the reason that John included this prayer in his gospel is because this is a prayer that he wants us to pray a lot, a lot. It's Jesus' prayer, and I would think if we want our prayers answered, it makes sense to pray the stuff that Jesus prayed, because I think Jesus gets all of his prayers answered. Um, there's an illustration, uh, a story, actually a story that I heard over the last week, and it's of a woman, and I don't know who she was, I don't know who her, what her story is, but this woman was a single mom. She had a couple of children that were toddlers, and she married, or she, she, was, uh, she wasn't married yet, she was actually dating a man, and they chose to go out of town. And when they went out of town, true story, uh, she left her toddlers at home, alone. See how it worked in that Christmas title there, Home Alone? Uh, she left her kids at home alone. Um, I'm imagining that the laughs aren't coming because that's a really horrific event. So, um, yeah. So she left her kids at home alone, and uh, she was arrested. She was arrested and prosecuted for child endangerment, abandonment. And um, I'm thinking about this story, and I think about all the other horrific stories that we hear, uh, things that as a father, a father of kids and small kids, it's, I can't even let my mind go there because it just is horrific to me. A child left in a car, um, children left at home. I've heard, I've, there was a story a few years ago here in Memphis of a woman who uh, went out in the morning and uh, the iron was left on and the iron caught the house on fire and a child died in that fire. This, it seems like these unconscionable 
transgressions are committed against children in our world so, so often. Um, I think about that little child in Aleppo who was found and was in the back of an ambulance. And one of the most vivid, powerful pictures I've seen this year. And this child is covered in debris and dust and blood. And he's just sitting there stoic in the back of an ambulance after he's been arrested from buildings that have come down around him from that uh, horrible civil war taking place in Syria. And and, uh, I can imagine Jesus is imagining what life is going to be like for us when he ascends to the right hand of the Father and we are living in this world that is dangerous, that's horrific at times, it's tragic. He's leaving us here. And these feelings, these thoughts, are what is causing Jesus to say what he's saying in this prayer when he says, hey, I'm no longer in this world, but they're going to be in this world. And so here's what I'm asking you, Father, as I place them in your hands, I am asking you to take care of them and do certain things in their lives while they live in this tragic, fallen, and broken world. And these are some of the things that he prays. And we're going to spend most of our time this morning on just verse 11. In verse 11, I'm going to read it again. And I want you to read it with me as though you've never heard this before. I want you to contemplate the words of this verse as I say it out loud. I'm going to read it through twice. And just let these words sort of immerse your heart and mind. And I am no longer in the world. Jesus speaking as though he's already ascended. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. I'm coming to you. Who's the you that he's talking about? Holy Father, he says, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. People who say that Jesus makes no claims in the gospel of divinity, I mean, right there. Your name, Yahweh, that you have given me, keep them in that name. I'm going to read it again. And I am no longer in the world but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I want to talk for a second about that word world. When Jesus is talking about the word world, he just doesn't mean this ball of dust that we live on. That's not what he has in mind here. Yes, when he ascends... He will somehow, this is a metaphysical uh, miracle that I can't explain, somehow with a physical resurrected body, he will be in God's presence concealed from our eyes. I don't know how that works. The scriptures talk about him sitting at the right hand of God, ruling over the nations. But he will be taken from us physically, from us. But there's another kind of world that this text has in mind. And it's not just the physical world that we're a part of. These chairs that we're sitting on. The clothing that's on your backs. The ink pens that you're writing with. The cars sitting in the parking lot. He's talking about something different than that. He's talking about something more than the physical universe. He's talking about the world insofar as it has rebelled against God. 
He's talking about the world which has chosen darkness rather than light. He's talking about the world which has organized itself to oppose God, the creator. I want to say that again. When Jesus is talking about the world, at the end of the previous chapter in John 16, when he says that I have overcome the world, when he talks about the world here that we are living in, this is the world that he has in mind. He's talking about the world that has rebelled against God. He's talking about the world that has chosen darkness rather than light. He's talking about the world that has organized itself against God to oppose the creator. This is the world that he's talking about. Jesus is anticipating what life will be like for each of us in that world that is opposed to the creator. This is why later in the text he says that the people who are in this world who are of me will be hated by the world. Doesn't mean that dirt and dust and mountains and antelopes will hate us. It means that the rebellious impulses, it means that humanity that has sided with darkness will despise what the people of God are, what they represent. This is what it's talking about. This is the world. So whenever he refers to world in this text, in the verses before or the verses after, he's talking about the world that has organized itself to oppose God. It's organized. It's a conspiracy against God. And this is what he has in mind. So one writer says, he talks about how we live life in a tragic world, but for those of us who are in God, we live under a faithful God. We live under a faithful God. And he says this, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me. Keep them in your name. That's an interesting way to pray for people. Keep them in your name. What if I prayed, Lord, keep my son or my sons or my daughters or my family in my name. What does that even mean? In verse 6, before this, Jesus claimed that he manifested God's name to his disciples. He said, I've manifested the name of God. Now, for us, that may not carry the weight that it did with those people back then. Because the name of God was sacred. It was holy. People like that had a practice where they didn't even use the name of God. It was so holy. And now you have a Jewish person in this culture saying, I have manifested the name of God to all creation. What does that even look like? How did he manifest God's name? And then he says this in verse 6. He says, in response to me manifesting the name of God, your people, Lord kept your word. They obeyed. So there's some connection between Jesus manifesting the name of God and God's people responding in obedience. What is that connection? In verse 8, he says that they have received God's word and they believed. They received God's word and they believed. So let's unpack this for a second. What is a name? What is a name? 
A name is an identity. It's an identity. It's what a person is about. When my parents came to faith in Christ and they had me, they named me Christopher. And the intent was was that I would find the faith that they found and had so much joy for. And that name Christopher means follower of Christ or bearer of Christ. I'm grateful that that intent and their prayers happened in my life. But for a lot of us in our culture, despite what our name means, there's sort of a dissonance. A lot of us don't find a lot of identity in our namesake, per se. A lot of us don't feel that. In that culture, it was a completely different deal. But today, names do mean something to us. When you meet me for the first time, if you're a member or a prospective member of our church, you want to know what my name is. And I want to know what your name is. Sometimes I forget because it's hard to remember a name of everybody. But, but I want to know. And, and I know for me that when I'm talking to someone that, who is a fellow member of this church, because I'm also a member of this church, not just a pastor, I'm a member here. I, I know that when I'm with you in a room, I'm, I'm near you, I want to know your name. As a matter of fact, if I don't know your name and we're having a conversation, the feeling is almost intolerable that I don't know who you are. I have to know your name. I don't know what it does to me that once I know your name, that, it's, that it helps me to take another step toward you. But it's something about knowing your identity that allows me to go deeper with you. The same is true of people that we don't want to know. We're not really concerned about the name of our waiter or our waitress. I'm sorry, waiters and waitresses that are in this room. Sometimes I forget your name. I really want to know your name, but sometimes we forget because we're not going to that restaurant to have a relationship with that waiter or that waitress. Even though they might write their name on that table like they do at Macaroni Grill or at Babalu or something like that, we don't remember their name because we're not there to have a relationship with that person. So that person's name almost feels inconsequential. But when you are doing life with someone, when you are with someone, it is crucial that we know that person's name. That person's name helps us take a step through the darkness, out of the darkness, into more familiarity. This is kind of what Jesus had in mind when he said, I manifested God's name. I manifested his name. I manifested his name. We need to know each other's names, and we need to know God's name. It helps us to break through. It separates us from the lack of familiarity and the strangeness. It helps us, knowing someone's name helps us to begin to grasp a person's nature, a person's ways, a person's way of thinking. And a person's way of looking at the world. Knowing a person's name is the first step into a person's life. Into a person's heart. Well, Jesus says, I manifested God's name. I manifested God's name to the people that you gave me out of the world. Now that is amazing. Notice the effect of knowing God's name. In that verse. The effect of knowing God's name is that his people have come out of the world. So knowing God's name is more than an an intellectual transaction. Knowing God's name is more than, oh, his name is Yahweh, manifested in the person of Jesus. Got that. What's the next Sunday school lesson? It's more than that. 
The knowing that Jesus speaks of here, the manifesting of Jesus' name has such an effect that it calls us out of this world into communion with God Almighty. So when Jesus says, I manifested God's name, he's not just saying, I gave you a lesson. He's not saying, I gave you the ABCs of Christianity. He's saying something remarkable, something incredible. What does he mean? Let's go a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper. The first thing that comes to my mind when it comes to manifesting a person's name is Moses. Moses, when he was at the burning bush. Uh, I want to read that in Exodus chapter 3. This is an incredible text. And I know it's a little bit warm in here. I feel the air blowing on me, and I'm, I'm hot, and I'm looking at some of y'all waving the uh, bulletin or whatever it is in front of your face. Um, I want to ask you to try to think through the uncomfortable heat in the room and like really dig into this text with me because this is so rich. Um, one of, I mean, one of the first times in Scripture that we're able to see someone or God manifest his name in a profound way is in Exodus chapter 3. And I really believe that this is kind of what John has in mind in John 17. So check out Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read a few verses here and just talk about this. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flocks to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, if you're looking in your Bible or maybe your smartphone does this, but that word LORD is all caps. Whenever that's in your Bible and it's all caps, the Hebrew word Yahweh is being used. Yahweh. And so the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire Out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. There is a ton of preaching in those first couple of verses. This text is incredible. You've got Moses walking by a burning bush. He does a double take and goes, Huh? And it's as though God is saying to him, life has been normal until now. Things are about to get flipped. Everything that you were familiar with, the ways that this world worked, you thought were this way, being with me is going to take you on a different path. You're going to see things you've never seen. You're going to experience things you've never experienced. You're going to see stuff that that people couldn't make up. This is what this flame that is in this bush is communicating to him. Because this bush is not being consumed. It's on fire, but it's not being damaged. The bush is still fertile. The bush is not being harmed, yet the bush is on fire. What is God saying to Moses? You see that in the next few verses. Moses approaches the bush. It's though God is saying this, I want to be near you. It's safe to be with me. Because in the next few verses, Moses approaches, but then God says, out of the bush, take your shoes off. 
That's an ancient Semitic way of showing respect, walking into someone else's presence, into their space, into their home. God had made a temple on the side of a mountain, and God said, take your shoes off when you're in my presence, in my room. And so Moses takes his shoes off, walks into that natural-made temple that God took over, and is in the presence of a burning bush, and the message is loud and clear. I am God. I want to be with you. I want you to be near me, but dare not disrespect me. Do not take me for granted. As American Christians, we face this every day. Every time we enter the doors of a church, every time we crack our Bibles, every time we pray, we are having a burning bush experience. We are in the presence of Yahweh himself, and we are tempted to leave our shoes on, sit back, crack a Coke, you know, and I'm not saying any of that's wrong. I do all that sometimes in prayer, but we must respect and revere Yahweh. What's going on here? Yahweh is revealing to Moses who his God is. He's showing him who he is because Moses doesn't know who the Hebrew God is. So check this out. Let's read on. Down in verse, uh, verse 4. Uh, let's see. No, actually verse, uh, verse 5. Then he said to him, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said to him, check this out. He begins to show a little bit more about himself. He's already gotten Moses' attention. I want to be with you. Come here. That's good. He's already showed Moses, I'm holy. Don't disrespect me. Worship me. What else does he want Moses to learn about him? And then he says this. Verse 6. I am the God of your father. Pharaoh was not your father. I am the God of your father. And then he says this. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. And the God of of Jacob. Whoa. All of a sudden, 500 years came to bear on Moses' life. And Moses is standing there looking at a burning bush, talking to a burning bush, maybe looking over his shoulder, I don't know, but talking to a burning bush. And he finds out Abraham is my great, 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 great grandfather. Now, I don't know if he knew that ahead of time or not, but God says, I am attached to your family and your family is attached to me. Your identity is rooted in me. This is who I am. I'm the God of Abraham. And so I can hear Moses' wheels turning. Wait, you're the God who chose an old man who was way beyond having kids to be the father of many peoples? You're that God using a nameless, faceless nobody. That's who you're the God of? And you're the God of my other great-grandfather, his son Isaac, a man who also could not have children with his wife. And when he prayed over Rebekah, God touched her womb, and out of her womb came two nations, two people groups, two ethnic groups. And you're the God of one of their children, uh, Jacob, Jacob, the one who led us in, led us through the promised land, who, uh, who, who uh, through Canaan, I'm sorry, who shepherded the people of God, and whose son Joseph and Jacob collaborated together to move us into Egypt when there was a great famine to save us and cause our nation to persevere. And you've been watching over us this whole time while we've been in slavery. You're that God. God is manifesting himself to Moses. He's showing him who he is. This is a profound chapter in our scriptures. Profound. Then in verse 13, check this out. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, 
and they ask me what's his name, what am I going to say to them? And God said to Moses, and this is what Yahweh means, I am who I am. Now that's another phrase you can preach on for a long time. But in essence, I have no borders. I have no boundaries. There is no category by which you can frame me. I am beyond all of that. Another translation is, I will do what I will do. Nothing can stop me. My way will always win. I am in total control. You've got an option. Trust me or not. And then we read on. Say to the people of Israel that I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, Yahweh, and I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the most, maybe the most profound moment in all of the Hebrew scriptures in which God says, if you want to know what I'm like, here's what I am. And one verse that I didn't read is when God said, Yahweh said to Moses, I hear the cry of the people and I have compassion on them. So here's what he wants Moses to know about him, that Moses has to go and teach the people of Israel. I am a consuming fire. Worship me and respect me. But I want to be with you. And I hear your heart cry. And I have compassion on you. And I'm the God who will always carry, care for you. Unbeknownst to you, 500 years before you were born, I was already caring for you. And hundreds and thousands of years after, I will still be caring for, your, caring for your lineage. I am Yahweh. Trust me. Now go back and tell your friends, the children of Israel, your ethnic group, your people. Go tell them who I am. Tell them Yahweh sent you to them. So when Jesus says, I have manifested the name of God to my disciples, this is probably what Jesus has in mind. I have manifested a consuming fire. I have manifested a God of gentleness and care. I have manifested a God who is in control of our lives. I have manifested a God who is from the beginning to the end. He is unfathomable, yet he wants us to know him. I have manifested this great God, which is why the words of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, are profound to me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And he is the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Man, sometimes good writing just gets you. You might not even need the Holy Spirit, but I think I felt the Spirit in that, in that verse. Man, that is good 
Jesus' followers accepted all this, my friends. They accepted that he came from God, that he manifested God's nature, that Jesus manifested God's personality, that Jesus manifested God's standards, that he manifested God's convictions, that Jesus manifested God's approach to living life. He manifested God's compassion. He manifested God's tenderness. He manifested God's desire to be near us, to be with us. He manifested that desire. The same God who upholds the universe by the word of his power, he manifested God to us. Jesus is the key to understanding the meaning of all things. Past present, future. Jesus is the key to eternity. Jesus is God and his followers, his earliest followers believed that he manifested God and that he is God and was God and forever will be God. They believed and because they, were, because they believed in him when he manifested God to them, at the end of verse 11 it says, out of this world. They were delivered from the dominion of that impulse that we're all born with to live in rebellion against God. Do they still stumble? Yes. Do we still stumble? Yes. Which is why I'm so thankful for grace. Grace. Something I need every moment of every day. Grace. Grace, even when my best intentions are shot through with selfishness. Grace. So Jesus prays to God that the Father would keep his followers, his disciples, in his name. And he just doesn't mean the 11, because Judas has now betrayed him. But even in the scriptures it says that that was foretold, and that Judas was never given to Jesus by God. Everyone that was given to Jesus, he kept. And he's saying, Father, continue to keep them. Keep them in the name. So what's the ultimate effect? And look at the end, look at verse 11 again with me if you would. The ultimate effect, because this is huge. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. What is the world? The organization against God, opposition to the Creator. Bear with me. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you have given me. Why? What does it say at the end of that verse? Why does he pray that he would keep us? That we may be one. You would expect him to say, keep them so that they will go to heaven. That's what you would expect. If I was writing this, that's what I would say. But he doesn't say keep them so they'll go to heaven. Give them eternal security. That's not what he says. He doesn't say that. Jesus is on his knees, I guess. Maybe he's walking. 
Uh, some people say he's in the upper room. Some say he's in the temple court. Some say he's approaching the Garden of Gethsemane. But he's praying, and his disciples are in earshot. And he's saying these words, and what is foremost on his mind is not this prayer. God, keep them from sin. He didn't say that. He says, keep them in your name so that they will be one. So that they will be one. Wow. The ultimate effect of being in his name is that we are one. This is probably one of the most unimitated prayers that Jesus prays. Because if we really did and tried to take our cue from Jesus in imitating Jesus, which is what all Christians should do, we would pray the same prayer. God, preserve us in your name so that we remain one. Keep me one with my daughter and my precious sister in Christ, who's really freaking out right now. Keep me one with her. Here, London, you get some too. All right. Keep me one with my dear friend London in Jesus. You're not even holding my hand. You're just sort of like the dead fish thing. Okay, there we go. All right. So keep me one. Keep me one with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Keep us one. Preserve us. It seems like what he's most concerned about, what weighs on his mind the most, is that we live as one. And here's the problem. This is why this is so surprising to us. Why is that surprising? This is why. Because we have been trained and shaped by a Christian culture, a Christianized culture, that causes us to believe by default that the machinery of church and the resources of God himself are given to us primarily to repair and fix our lives. What is a church? It's a hospital for the brokenhearted. Some of our deepest assumptions that we never allow to be challenged have been formed by ugh, incorrect, maybe impaired thinking. I'm not going to say bad thinking because the church is a hospital for the brokenhearted. It should be. But that's not the fundamental reason why we're one, just to fix people. There's a reason deeper than that. Because Jesus says, make them one like we're one, Father. And so Jesus, who came down in the flesh, took on skin. Philippians 2 says that he became nothing. He didn't cease to exist. It just is, it's a poetic way of saying that he became far less than what he was. He came to this earth. He put on human skin. And he's yearning in this text, as Ron preached last week, God, glorify me. Restore me to my glory so that I can be with you again. I yearn for that. Why? Because Jesus thinks being a human stinks and it's just better, way better being a God. And he was always God the whole time he was here. It's because that's who Jesus is. Jesus is God. And he misses what he is. He yearns for what he is. 
He wants to be restored in the Trinity where there's unbroken fellowship because tomorrow, when Jesus is praying this prayer, the next day, he is going to say the words, Father, why have you forsaken me? As he lay across a piece of wood, bloodied and beaten and dying. He's yearning for that. And he's yearning that we would be who we are. One in Christ. In the same way that Jesus belongs with the Father, believers belong with one another. If you didn't hear Denise's message a few weeks ago, you need to listen to that podcast. It's the best message I've heard in one week. Uh, I'm kidding. In a long time. In the same way that Jesus belongs with the Father, believers belong with one another. And she spent the whole message teasing that out. Community, 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 community. Community isn't like an add-on to Jesus. Get them to heaven and man, I hope they can have some joy and community on the way there. Inseparable from our salvation is the fact that you and I are one in the Spirit. We are one. We are intended by God. As a matter of fact, I'll take it to another level. Part of the miracle of salvation is that Jesus in the Spirit makes us close, confessional, vulnerable, grace-filled, courage-imparting relationships that are often trying that are sometimes hard because we're not glorified yet. We're broken. And so we're going to have to work on our oneness in Jesus. When I hurt you, we're going to have to talk about it. When you hurt me, we're going to have to work it out. This is what believers do in Jesus. This is what we do. This is what we do. There's this movie that's coming out soon. I have no idea if it's going to be any good, but it's called Collateral Beauty, and it's uh, starring Will Smith. And I feel like I've seen the commercial a thousand times, and this phrase I keep seeing every time this commercial happens, and he says this, life is about people. We're here to connect. Through some tragedy in his life, he is learning that life is about people. We are here to connect. You know, even the world can stumble upon truth, it's called common grace. Non-believing people can come up with science, mathematic theorems that are incredible. Common grace. And these movie producers and writers have found, stumbled upon something that is so true that Jesus is teaching here. That we, the reason we exist is so we can be one with God and one with one another. And so you get down to the bottom here. And what we have from Jesus is this. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 14. He says, I've given them your word. I've given your people your word. Now remember, at the beginning of the message today, we talked about how Jesus said, I manifested God's name, and the way that they believed was through hanging on to my word. So the way that he manifests his name is through his word. It's through his word. Now, if you were reading this letter 2,000 years ago and you were one of the people John directly emailed, 
2,000 years ago, this letter. They didn't have email back then. I was just tricking you. Um, I, th- I don't think that came out until like after the Reformation. But anyway, uh, if you were one of the people that John sent this letter to, you, in your mind, you could not have gone home and opened the family Bible on your coffee table. You didn't have that. This is probably 30 to 50 years after Jesus has died. You didn't have a family Bible. You didn't have version on your smartphone. You couldn't have Googled the Bible. He said to them, he talked about manifesting his word to them and us rooting ourselves in his word. I'm going to read verse 14. I have given them your word, and the word hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I gave them your word. I am convinced that most people, that a lot of people in Western Christianity have not allowed themselves to be reshaped and retrained by God's word in such a way that it actually changes their lives. I'm totally convinced of that. Totally convinced of that. Uh, This guy named G.K. Chesterton, he famously said this, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been difficult and left untried. Famous statement. You can find that on Twitter about twice a week. Somebody somebody puts that up. But he has given us his word. What we're going to come next week and do when we come back together is we're going to come back and we're going to talk about what it's like and what needs to happen in a believer's life so that we can be reshaped and retrained by God's word. And what you're going to come back to is not you need to have you know, a time every morning where you crack the Bible and, and, and fit, God's, fit God's word into your life. We're going to go a little bit deeper than that. I want every one of you to be reshaped by God's word. So I hope you'll come back next week and hear this because I, I have to cut it off. But you need to hear where this goes. You are loved by God. God wants to be with you. And God wants to change you. But you've got to submit to God's way of changing you. We're going to talk about that next week. Jesus, I thank you for today. You are gracious and kind. You are loving. You are merciful. I thank you that we have been delivered from this world. We've been delivered from this world. Help us, Jesus, to trust in you, to lean on you, to believe in you. And we thank you that you have manifested God to us. You are awesome, Lord. You are so awesome. In Jesus' name, amen.